This program is brought to you by Haymarket Books as part of our live event series. Haymarket Books is a radical, independent publisher dedicated to connecting social movements with the ideas they need in the struggle for a better world. You can help support the Haymarket Project by buying books at haymarketbooks.org and especially by joining the Haymarket Book Club. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast and the Haymarket YouTube channel to access all of our upcoming events. Hi, welcome everyone, and thanks for joining us from around the world for today's event, The Virus, The Climate, The Alternative, Eco-Socialist Solutions to Capitalist Crises. I'm Dana Blanchard. I work at Haymarket Books, and I'm excited to be joined by our two amazing speakers today, leading eco-socialist activists and scholars, Andreas Malm and Thea Ria Frankos. Before I start, I want to thank our co-sponsors, Verso Books and the DSA's Eco-Socialist Working Group. Folks should definitely check out the links in the chat for more information about each of our co-sponsors. Now, it's my pleasure to introduce our speakers and begin our program. First, I want to welcome Andreas Mom, whose new book, Corona, Climate, Chronic Emergency, will serve as the jumping off point for our conversation today. Andreas is a scholar of human ecology, a longtime eco-socialist activist, and the author of numerous incredible books, including The Progress of This Storm, Fossil Capital, for which he won the Isaac and Tamara Deutscher Memorial Prize, and the forthcoming How to Blow Up a Pipeline, which sounds amazing. Thanks so much for joining us, Andreas. Also with us today is Thea Ria Francos. Thea is an assistant professor of political science at Providence College, an Andrew Carnegie Fellow, a Radcliffe Institute Fellow, and a member of the Democratic Socialist of America. And she serves on the steering committee of the organization's eco-socialist working group. Her research focuses on resource extraction, renewable energy, climate change, green technology, social movements, and the left in Latin America. All of these things which are touched upon in her book, Resource Radicals, and the co-authored volume, A Planet to Win. So glad you can join us, Thea. Links for all the excellent books I just mentioned should be posted in the chat. And without further delay, I will hand it over to Andreas to kick off our conversation. Thanks so much, Dana, and thanks, Thea, and thanks to all the comrades who have uh, made this event possible and to everyone who's joining. Um, so just to put this little book that I wrote in some context, uh, I'm sitting in Berlin right now, and uh, I was in Berlin this spring when the pandemic started, and uh, the whole city got under lockdown, and I ended up uh, speed writing this uh, little intervention into discussions around uh, the coronavirus and, and climate. So I, I was basically locked up in my apartment in uh, Neukölln, and then went back home to Sweden where, uh, as you might know, there ha has never been any lockdown. And uh, now I, I just a few days ago came back to Berlin and, and we're back at exactly the same spot where we were in, uh, in spring. So the city is shutting down on Tuesday because the infection rates are going up and uh, yeah, the, the, the fatalities, the number of fatalities is going up. And France, uh, I was I was supposed to, to go to go to France next week. France is closing down completely, as you probably heard. 
with essentially, you know, people confined to their homes, national curfews and this. And the, the sense of deja vu now is, is incredible. That I, I, I'm, I'm returning to Berlin and exactly the same thing is happening again. Uh, if this is a second wave uh, or whatever, it, it really feels very much like the first one. And who knows, there might be another wave in spring. Uh, the virus might mutate or we might have another pandemic. So there really is the sense this situation is becoming almost chronic. Uh, uh, we don't really know how for how long uh, it will go on. Uh, it's also very strange when you when you when you move around the city in Berlin and you, you see all the people wearing masks. Where, where I live, uh, normally in Malmo, in southern Sweden, almost no one wears a mask. So it, it, it almost comes as a shock uh, to be this innocent Swede coming to one of the European countries that really treats this this crisis. With, with more urgency, whatever one think of it, that's that's how it feels. And when you see all this pipe, all people walking around with masks, it's almost this you know apocalyptic feeling. Uh, and and I, I, you have a sense that it's a billion invisible threads, everyone is moving around, linked and connected to the destruction of wild nature that is going on all the time uh, on earth. And that drives this trend of more and more emerging infectious diseases. But this is not something that people speak about or discuss. The ecological dimension, the, the fundamental drivers of a pandemic such as this particular one are almost completely absent from the discourse. That's at least the case in Sweden. I think it's the same in, in Germany and in most other places that, that what people discuss and focus almost exclusively on is how do we how do we manage this disease? How do we treat the symptoms? What kind of restrictions should be imposed? Uh, can we can we expect a vaccine soon? Uh, how can we how can we treat the, the, the sick people? How can we protect ourselves from from the virus? What are these things that are about how do we deal with the symptom? Uh, but what, what's completely missing is a discussion of the driver of the problem and the the, the central driver of the of rising uh, the, of more and more frequent and and uh, uh, devastating emerging infectious diseases the, the the key driver is deforestation because what we have here is and this is what I what I lay out in the book and I should say that I'm not an epidemiologist I don't have uh, professional expertise in this particular field I normally do history uh, in my scholarly activity but I I try to read up on the science and my understanding of it is that uh, those viruses circulate naturally in wildlife populations, uh, but they they tend to increasingly jump into human populations and then spread through human species. This is the phenomenon known as zoonotic spillover. And this happens because humans, uh, the, uh, the human economy, and to be more specific about it, the capitalist economy, wreaks havoc on the habitats where those Wild animals that carry these pathogens with them naturally live. <clears throat> and uh, the, the, the prime vector for that chaos creation, if you like, is deforestation, because the habitats are cut up, 
clear cut, make way for plantations, pastures, and other spaces for producing commodities. And uh, by, by, by logging forests, by cutting ropes through them, by fragmenting them, uh, you create what's known as interfaces between humans and wild animals that carry those pathogens. Uh, and uh, through these interfaces, when, when we as humans come into disruptive contact with those animal populations, you increase the risk of zoonotic spillover. Now, what's, what's been going on with deforestation, one might ask this year? Well, deforestation is, is accelerating around the globe in a way that we haven't seen in a long time. So you have, I mean, there's a frenzy of deforestation going on in Central Latin America, as you uh, as you probably know, with Bolsonaro overseeing uh, an unprecedentedly fast destruction of the Amazon. And but we also have a very serious crisis in 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 the areas of in the, in the rainforest in in Bolivia and northern Argentina and elsewhere in Latin America. We have a crisis of deforestation in Indonesia, where the Indonesian government has just decided to open up its rainforests for foreign capital and allow foreign investors to do pretty much whatever they like with the forests. Just like the government has, in a, in a very neat symmetry, opened the, 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 the workers of Indonesia for foreign exploitation. That's why we saw this explosion of, of uh, labor unrest recently in Indonesia, which also targets this, uh, uh, this environmentally catastrophic uh, aspect of, uh, of Indonesian policy here. <clears throat> so, uh, and you have Donald Trump just announcing that he's going to open uh, uh, the, the temperate rainforest in Alaska, Tongas, for logging. So there's no sign that during this year deforestation is, has anyway, in any way slowed down. Uh, rather, you have the, the driver of this problem of zoonotic spillover accelerating in this year. And then we have, of course, the other big catastrophe that's ongoing, which is the climate catastrophe. And just the other day, The Guardian reported one of the scariest reports I've seen for some time, namely scientists observing for the first time clear evidence that the methane hydrates that, that are frozen in the, in, the, in the Arctic Sea, in the, in the bottom of the sea, these methane hydrates, these deposits of methane are now being activated. So the methane is seeping up through the water column, bubbling up and entering the atmosphere in the Arctic Sea because the, the because heat, global heating is so fast in the, the Arctic. Uh, uh, see, this is happening. Uh, you know, even the most alarmist scientists ha hadn't expected this to happen until late in the century, even under the worst case scenarios, but it's happening now. And methane, as you might know, is a greenhouse gas that is about 80 times as potent as carbon dioxide when it enters the atmosphere. Then it's converted into carbon dioxide after a number of years, but the is is just dizzying. And while you have this happening, okay, yeah. So, so uh, to pick up the thread here, uh, one of the largest oil and gas companies in the world Catalyst Corporation in France is parent to the RC, the backing of the Macron and Macron himself. It's too ill for more support 
for even more fuel on the fire. And again, there's total disconnect between the magnitude of the catastrophe and how the drivers are allowed to just keep keep on pushing us deeper and deeper into uh, the catastrophe. I hope that, that my audio is working and that you can all uh, hear me. Otherwise, uh, uh, point this out to me. So uh, the, 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 I guess the core of the argument in the book is that if we don't, if we can't find a way to turn these crises of symptoms into crises of the drivers. And what I mean by that is if, if we can't transform those moments of uh, uh, serious ecological disasters into uh, uh, into social crises where we confront the drivers, as in the case that uh, devastate the rainforests in the tropics, and the companies that dig up more fossil fuels and uh, send them to the various fireplaces uh, all over the globe. If we can't make that shift, we're doomed to uh, an endless series of this kind of uh, of disasters. Be it new pandemics, or be it the uh, the you know the, the the succession of extreme weather events that will only uh, uh, be exacerbated and uh, and and uh, become more. Uh, catastrophic the longer we go on with business as usual. So uh, th this is, yeah, I, I, the subtitle of the book, it says the war communism in the 21st century. I have a, an argument around around war communism of the state. I think we can come into that during the conversation. But let me just say uh, very briefly that what if, if you look at the case of Total, this French company, what, what should happen there is pretty obvious. That company should be socialized. It should be taken over uh, into public hands. And uh, a state should should decide that this now socialist socialized company desists uh, from digging up any more fossil fuels, combination of fossil fuel extraction of that company, and instead transforming that company into something else such as a company that tries to clean up the atmosphere instead and draw down CO2 instead of producing even more of this stuff. The problem is, of course, that nothing of that sort is on the cards in a country like France, if we if we take that for an example right now, as an example right now. And, and part of the trade is that conditions of lockdown, as we live in in, 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 in most of Europe right now, are extremely disadvantaged for social movements because they make make it virtually completely impossible to mobilize. Because the most criminal thing that you can do under these restrictions is to gather a lot of which is how we big how we build social movements, right? We don't have we don't have military power, we don't have capital, we don't have the media. What we have as social movements, at least potentially, is large numbers of people on the streets demanding various things. And any any kind of shift to a focus on the drivers of these disasters requires would require that kind of, of social movement mobilization. On the ecological front, uh, uh, something like we saw last year, 2019, with the climate movement mobilizations around the world, but on an even greater magnitude. But right now, 
that is precisely what is completely impossible because everyone is sitting in their homes. So uh, the the political situation right now, uh, it really is quite uh, depressing. I, I have to say, uh, perhaps in France, and France in particular, where where you know that that's a country where where you have in Europe uh, a rare case of a country where you've had social movements in recent years. Obviously, the the yellow vests, uh, various strike movements. Uh, and also some signs of, a, of an environmental awakening in the country with advances of the Green Party, whatever you think of them. <coughs> it's, it's, it's some kind of a sign. But now France is not only under complete lockdown, but also suffers from uh, another wave of Islamophobia in conjunction with those uh, terror attacks that have been happening, the most recent one today. And that makes it extremely difficult. The combination of lockdown and a nationalist frenzy in, in reaction to the, these terrorist attacks makes it extremely difficult to mobilize, including against something like Total going into the Arctic. And uh, France might be the, most, the starkest case today, but but this is the, the general prediction in Europe and I think in many other places. You, you obviously is, is a bit different it's, it's having another political situation with election and all that but uh, uh, it, it's 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 a difficult year <laughs> uh, 2019 much 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 more hopeful on the climate front uh, here we are just a few months later and beyond and we really have to think how 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 do we how can, how do we deal with this chronic emergency as yeah, as a climate movement, as eco-socialists, as a left, how do we organize under it, and how can we, uh, how can we see any ways out? And I, I do not pretend to have uh, uh, all the answers to these questions in my book. I think I'll leave it there. Great, thank you um, for that, uh, for the sort of entree into your book and and um, the context that that inspired you to write it, and also your. Sort of pessimism at the end. I think you know we'll definitely come back to that and and see um, if we if we feel that it's warranted by the end of this conversation. Um, so let me just like uh, for for those that haven't read the book, uh, I think that was a great summary into sort of what motivated it and some of your key arguments. I'm going to say a little bit more about what you say in the book, and then I'm going to pose some initial questions. So what I take to be the core claim of the first half of the book is that both. Corona and climate crisis and the climate crisis are symptoms produced by capitalism as it comes into contradiction with its own conditions of socio-natural reproduction. So they're both symptoms. Um, they're different symptoms, though in a way not as different as they might appear to us um, uh, in our everyday life or in the way that the media sort of reports on them. As you write, they are instead two interlaced aspects on different scales of time and space of what is now one chronic emergency. Um, you also sort of historicize them in similar ways in the sense that both are rooted in this longstanding pattern of unequal ecological and pathological exchange. Um, you brought up Indonesia as a really great example of, of how this works. That's kind of structured global north-south relations since the dawn of capitalism and colonial conquest and transatlantic slavery. And what this dynamic of unequal ecological exchange does, first and foremost, is externalize socio-environmental harm onto the global periphery, 
a lot of it through appropriating vast amounts of land to provide the raw materials needed for commodity production. This, of course, leads to relentless deforestation that's only picking up pace, um, ecosystem destruction, which is the, the root cause of zoonotic diseases like COVID, but also, of course, both causes and worsens climate crisis, though climate crisis has independent causes of those as well. But, you know, though this dynamic emerges out of inequality and reproduces inequality, it doesn't, the, the effects of it don't stay um, uh, in the global South, right? And as you, you know, show like, you know, these, these symptoms, whether it's, it's the COVID or, or climate crisis, cross borders, right? There's a sort of return of the repressed kind of dynamic where this increasing production of hazardous nature undermines the, the system as a whole and also claims victims also in the global north, right? So like hazardous nature knows no boundaries. Um, and, you know, in addition to, to, to what I just mentioned, climate change is itself creating, as you said, new interfaces of human-non-human interaction. Um, so um, climate, in addition to the deforestation piece, climate change makes zoonotic disease more likely as species migrate to find new niches um, in, in temperatures that they can withstand. Um, so, so from your point of view, and I, I very much share it, the idea that states have acted quickly to contain COVID while dithering and doing nothing on climate is false. In both cases, the ecological roots have gone unaddressed. And um, in both cases, confronting those ecological roots would come into direct conflict with uh, the exigencies of capitalism, uh, the interests of the ruling class, and the states that, that protect both. Um, so this is kind of where the state um, uh, comes in where the left comes in, um, the possibility of connecting symptom as co and cause, responding to this chronic emergency via war communism. And I want to talk more in a moment, a little later in our conversation about what you mean by war communism and what type of political strategy would bring it into being. But before we get into how to solve the crisis um, or what to do. Um, I want to stay with this chronic emergency for a moment because um, I think it raises a few interesting questions. Um, I'll, I'll actually just lay out like, like two questions that I have about chronic emergency just within capitalism before we get to militant resistance. One is, does the chronic emergency suggest that there is like a cleaving between the interests of particular capitalists and the interests of the system as a whole? Is there some tension or conflict internal to capitalists in which the, you know, profit, uh, the profit um, uh, margins of, of fossil capitalists, of those with directly vested interests in, um, in uh, reproducing fossil capitalism come into some tension with either other capitalists, like those in renewable energy or green technology or whatever it is, or maybe more importantly, with the system as a whole. Um, so, you know, Marx and, and Marxists since him have, have, have talked about these, the, the sort of irrationality and even collective action and coordination dilemmas among capitalists themselves, where the interests of some capitalists are not always or maybe ever the interests of all capitalists. They're in competition with one another. Um, but what often happens at those key moments where the interests of a fragment of the capitalist class comes into tension with the capitalist class as a whole or just like the system of capitalism itself, what often happens and what saves the day is that the bourgeois state steps in to correct um, to correct um, and to bring into line the interests of distinct capitalists. And in fact, the bourgeois state is itself an arena in which 
something like systemic interest of capitalism itself can be articulated, implemented, and promoted ideologically. So, you know, I guess my my first two questions are, does that make sense to you, what I just said? Is there a tension between different fragments of capitalism, capitalists, excuse me, and if so, why is the state not playing its historic role to kind of set capitalism on a more rational and sustainable course for its own interests and in sort of system preservation? Um, and I'll sort of leave it there and, and uh, we can see where it goes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. The, these are eminently uh, significant and difficult questions. Uh, and uh, I, I'm not sure I can answer them, but I, I'll, I'll try to say something. Uh, I, I think that the scenario you lay out is, uh, uh, I mean, it's broader the case that, that in a sense, objectively speaking, there are, are uh, collisions of interest between certain fractions of the capitalist class. For instance, you would imagine that uh, because this pandemic has triggered the worst um, recession that we've had in, in modern capitalist history, there would objectively be some kind of a conflict between companies that most aggressively uh, deforest the tropics and almost everyone else. Uh, or there, there is a, a, a objectively there should be a conflict of interests between capital involved in wildlife trade, huge and booming business, even though it's in the in the shadows of, of the markets. But, but I'm so, so so are, are so, so is the arms trade and and other spheres of capital accumulation. So in in itself, there's there's nothing strange about uh, this uh, about an illicit department of capital accumulation. But you you could say that objectively there should be an, a, a collision of interests between capitalists trading in pangolins, for for instance, and everyone else. Uh, but but just as you say, there there's, I mean, what what the what states have been doing during this year is that they have intervened in a remarkably dramatic fashion into the normal operation of markets and uh, the spheres of both to to protect certain conditions of reproduction of the capitalist system, notably the 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 physical integrity and health of of the working population and the consuming population as well. <clears throat> so states have been capable of doing that, as in, you know, state, states have, and it, it is quite remarkable, states have gone in and said, you companies, you restaurants, you shopping malls or whatever, you have to close. Now you close down for this uh, period of time. Uh, a, a sort of intervention that we, we really haven't seen before. But what states have not done, as you allude to, or, or as you as you say, the state states have not managed articulate a general interest uh, in maintaining the, the conditions uh, for capital accumulation by going to the root causes, the drivers, by going after wildlife trade or this, uh, doing anything about the supply chains that drive deforestation, anything like that. And I'm actually, in a sense, a little bit surprised because one would imagine that uh, the bourgeoisie, the, the capitalist class, would uh, would be in such a state of 
shock after this uh, uh, very difficult uh, year for 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 capitalist economies that they would assemble in their forums, their world economic forums, and whatever you know, whatever forums they have for thinking about their class politics, and ask the question: How do we make sure that this doesn't happen again? But so far, I've seen I've seen nothing of that from the capitalist class, right? But what you have is you have discussions about vaccines and you know uh, more surveillance to avoid uh, viruses uh, jumping and things like that. But absolutely nothing uh, in the sense of limiting the the underlying exploitation. I mean, I, I guess the, the classical case here of a kind of state rationality acting on behalf of the capitalist class in general would be legislation to stop over-exploitation of, of workers by, uh, by, by limiting working hours, as, in, uh, as described by Marx in the first volume of Capital. That was a way for the state to preserve the working population so that capitalists didn't completely physically destroy the workers. Uh, so, so, this, so, the, so the capital could go on exploiting it, that, or that—that that at least was part of the logic. But nowadays, states don't seem capable of taking this, the, these steps to preserve the, the, even 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 conditions for the, the fundamental health of their populations. Perhaps because there's no popular counterforce that that could push the state to. Uh, to take on that sort of, of rationality for the capitalist class as a whole, because the paradox of things like factor, the factory legislation was that the states only took that step uh, that, that was uh, uh, in the long term, I guess, rational for, for capital as a whole when it was pushed to do so uh, by pressure from the working class movement. And in the absence of a similar kind of pressure, apparently states are not capable any longer to take that larger view, maybe. I don't know. Yeah, no, I think that you're exactly right that, you know, the 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 moves that the that the bourgeois state has made to to protect protect the the conditions of reproduction of capitalism have been um uh, have been triggered by the the sort of protagonism of 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 the working class. I mean, in, in, in many cases and in the case of the factory laws that that Marx lays out in Capital. And, you know, so I think that there might that that's that's one reason um, we don't though we have had much more massive mobilization around climate than in the past couple of years than like ever before that um, perhaps it it hasn't um, it hasn't been linked to the the point of production in the same way that like a strike is and so we could maybe think about like what are the targets of what could be targets of of kind of militant climate mobilization that get to those points of, of production sort of broadly understood. Of course, you know, direct action against fossil fuel um, infrastructure, of which there's been much more of in the past several years, um, uh, to stop pipelines or to, you know, protest against planned projects is one way to think about that. But I think we need to kind of expand beyond those targets um, and think about you know, how climate mobilization in a similar way to like the labor strike could force, um, you know, could force changes in, in capital accumulation and, and, and in state policy. But we'll come back to that maybe a little bit later when we talk more about tactics. One, one other thing that your comments brought up for me is that and you don't like directly say this in a, in the book, but it's a it's it's a sense that one gets, and I even get it more strongly in your comments just now, which is that there's almost like a deeper layer of level, I should say, of mystification, ideological about what the natural ecological conditions of the reproduction of capitalism are compared to its 
social conditions of reproduction. Of course, we don't want to neatly separate those. Your book does an excellent job and your other work in showing how, you know, the social and the natural like are, 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 um, are, are constantly intertwined and are, you know, mutual conditions of one another. But to the extent that we can separate them, at least analytically, there is a way in which the capitalist state seems much more primed to respond to something like you know, a labor shortage or the inability of workers to show up to work um, or the fact that they have insufficient, um, you know, food or housing, though I almost hesitate to say that because we have this like dramatic housing crisis in the U.S. So, you know, there are limitations there as well, but there are limitations maybe even further on on like how states and capitalists like see or don't see what the ecological conditions of capitalism are that's that seem to point to this like deeper level of mystification um uh that is so deep that it it you know penetrates the, the minds of capitalists who are unable to see um what the what the basic requirements are for their own accumulation processes so that that's sort of an interesting um con, you know provocation that 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 maybe you'd um agree with um you know yeah, I, yeah. Uh, let me just let me just quickly say that that's a, a, an extremely interesting thought and some something I haven't thought about myself. Uh, you, you should elaborate on that and, and write it up because I haven't seen anyone make that argument that there, there is a, a deeper level of mystification around the ecological conditions of, of production. Uh, that 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 makes it just. I mean, it's not legible. It's not. It's not visible. It's not something that capitalist states uh, can perceive. Apparently, uh, it's a very good and interesting argument. You should uh, expand on it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, my um, my friend um, and co-author Alyssa Battistoni is actually writing uh, in the process of writing a book now that is sort of thinking about the sort of status of nature under capitalism. And this is one way way in to think about that. Um, and but yeah, I think it it, it deserves much much more, um, discussion. Um, let me, I kind of want to pivot to like a more specific, um, uh, aspect of this, of this moment that we're in, in terms of this tension between different fractions of capital, the role of the state, all of that kind of thing. Um, and I, I'm just curious if you have any thoughts about the state of the fossil fuel industry right now. So it's like a little off topic from your, this book, though it seems very relevant to your other book that's forthcoming. Um, you know, we're, it's, it's very confusing to think about it in a way. On the one hand, we have this like price crash, this drop in demand, these declining stock values. It's clear that like what it would take to resuscitate um, fossil, the, the, the fossil fuel industry would, you know, again, enter into direct confrontation with the systemic needs of capitalism to continue. You know, it's causing this, you know, climate crisis that's accelerating every day. Um, um, and, you know, on, on the one hand, it seems like fossil capital specifically as a, a sort of fragment of capital and as a specific sector is, is maybe politically and economically weakened in a way that like, militant mobilization could sort of enroll state action to target it. Like it's the perfect moment for expropriation. Um, but on the other hand, we know from past sort of busts of the fossil fuel industry, I mean, moments when there was a crash in prices um, uh, or, or, or lower demand um, for various reasons, what the industry has done is simply merged, acquisitioned, and reconsolidated and actually become a more powerful juggernaut, right? So like 
that 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 happened, you know, a, a several years ago after the the the, the financial crash, of course, a, a decade ago. So, you know, I'm curious, just on this sub point, just I'm very curious what you think as like a historian in a way of energy transitions, right? Like you, your your long work on like historical work is about these moments of transition between different fuels to fuel capitalism. And I'm curious if you think we're at such a moment. Or if you think the fossil fuel industry will just like continue as this zombie-like parasite um, and just get stronger, you know, counter all like other, you know, objective realities. Or if you think we're at a moment of transition and if so, um, are we about to contend with like a new kind of capitalist fragment, which is like, you know, green energy capitalists um, or green technology capitalists. I'm just curious where you see us in terms of your actual, your other work on energy transitions. If you think we're in another one and if you think it can be contained within capitalism or is itself like an opportunity to uh, transcend capitalism. Uh, okay. Yeah. There are lots of, of questions intertwined here and, and, and problems. Uh, let me just say first that I think that the, it, it, this transition as in referring to a transition transition away from fossil fuels would be by definition qualitatively different from the transition into fossil fuels for many reasons. First of all, you have the temporality aspect as in this transition has to happen very, very fast. And then it it, it wouldn't it would not be propelled by capitalist interests, as the previous transition was, to the contrary, it would be propelled by popular uh, interests that are articulated through politics, uh, these interests being in uh, preventing a, a completely uncontrollable, uh, irreversible, runaway uh, climate catastrophe. So the, the whole logic of this transition would be very, very different. It, it wouldn't happen it wouldn't happen spontaneously by by capitalist companies shifting from one energy source to another for reasons of profit as in the previous transition. It, it would it would be politically a politically constituted transition through and through. So the question is, are we in a moment where the transition can happen? And as you Say it's confusing, contradictory, and let me just give a couple of examples from my own country, Sweden, which is a—it's a backwater. It's not—it's not a very relevant country, but there are some interesting events happening in that country recently. We had a central fight for the climate movement determined, the outcome determined in in recent weeks, and this this struggle was around an oil refinery that exists on the western coast and the owner of that refinery application to expand it and if this expansion would have gone through it would have made this refinery the single largest point source of emissions in sweden so like more than 10 percent of all co2 emissions in sweden would have come from this river if the expansion had happened now two things intervened to stop this expansion one was the pandemic which, with as you say, the, the crash in the oil price made the, uh, the this, this the simple uh, financial calculus behind this expansion it put it in doubt. So the company, uh, at the end of the day, didn't have uh, enough capital simply to go through with this with this uh, with this investment, or or the the forecast wasn't uh, <clears throat> sufficiently promising. 
because of the crash in oil prices. And the other thing that happened was that you had a popular mobilization, not massive by any means, but you had a, a mobilization of whatever forces you have on the on the climate movement targeting this company and this plan for expanding uh, the economy. And the combination of these two factors made the company just a few weeks back shell the plan and say, okay, we're not going to go through with this with this, uh, with this expansion. And it was hailed as a major victory for the climate movement in Sweden. Now, obviously, what we, what we need is not just to stop expanding this infrastructure. We need to dismantle it. I mean, it's a question of sh- how do we shut oil refineries down, not just how do we build more of them and bigger. Uh, and that's not happening uh, uh, in Sweden or, or anywhere else. What, what's happening at the same time, and this is uh, also part of what you mentioned, is that you have at the same time, you have the states going into to try to, to save parts of fossil capital, broadly speaking. So in Sweden, for instance, you've had the government, the government of, of Greens and Social Democrats pouring billions of Swedish crowns on the aviation industry, which has been on the on the knees in Sweden as everywhere else, to save it and to try to resuscitate it uh, after this this crisis, and I think it's the same in in uh, in the U.S. and it's it's the same here in Germany that where governments have used where where fossil capital has been weakened, try to shift away. But instead, try to save it by pumping even more money into it. So, uh, you know, during this year, there has been a lot of talk about we can't go back to normal. The recovery has to be green. We have to to use this opportunity to transition away from fossil fuels. Developments so far are not that uh, you know, there, 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 there are no major reasons for optimism so far that this has has actually started or or this is happening. And I really do think that a fundamental reason that this opportunity might is that we are not on this mobilization is not happening. And I think uh, to to speak from a strictly climate movement perspective, I think it might have been. Been a, a very serious mistake that the climate movement so readily abolished itself when the lockdowns started uh, and just uh, completely let go of the momentum and went home in front of our screens and just accepted all the restrictions. Maybe we should have done just like just like Black Lives Matter did and just ignore the restrictions and flout them. Not not because we're against the restrictions per se. Just like the BLM, it didn't go into the streets because because people hated restrictions, but because they wanted to protest the murder of George Floyd and the systemic racism against black people. And I think that the climate movement should, should do something similar, because I don't know how else we're going to try to push states to to make use of this opportunity or, or have a green recovery. Who's going to do it if, if we just continue sitting home? Uh, and I think that the climate movement and its allies should be on the streets also making the point that if you don't want more lockdowns, if you don't want more pandemics, you have to go after the drivers. Otherwise, this will happen again and again and again and again. And it's not an argument that the climate movement has learned to make yet uh, during this year. Now, the other question that you raise here is, will this transition go beyond uh, the capitalist system? Yeah, it's a very, very big one. Now, my my standard answer to that question is we don't know. It's I don't think that we that we know as a matter of axiom 
the logic that fossil fuels is impossible. I mean, capitalism originally was not dependent on fossil fuels, but on traditional, what we would today call renewable energy sources. So it's not it, by definition in the nature of capitalism that has to rely on fossil fuels. But a transition has to abolish one fraction of the capitalist class. That's for sure. And that's the fraction that makes profit out of producing fossil fuels. That fraction has to cease to exist completely. And that's a very big task uh, to defeat such a powerful part of the capitalist class and just completely take it out of business. And if you were to succeed in that task, it's not unlikely that you set in motion a dynamic that also starts to point beyond capitalism. I mean, to go back to the case of France, what would it mean to take the single largest capitalist corporation in that country and put it under public control? Is that something you can do within the framework of capitalism? Can that be an isolated reform? That, you know, everyone who understands the climate problem knows that that company that wants to increase oil and gas production by workers, like 10-20% in the next 10 years, when we, in fact we have to cut emissions by half or even more during that time, that company cannot continue to exist as such. That's, I mean, that's embedded in the very realization that we have a climate crisis. But I mean, if you actually were to act on that realization, would that be continued capitalism in France? Well, perhaps. We don't know. But it might also, as I said, set in motion. I mean, this is the logic of transitional demands. You, you raise demands that, that speak to a certain moment of, of crisis, but then perhaps it, it goes beyond the prevailing order in general. Uh, but we, I don't think we know. And the, the important thing is not saying we have to abolish capitalism in total, all of it now. The important thing is to do what is necessary and make sure that it happens and take it from there and it, be prepared to take fights against the, the, the class interests uh, that are represented in our enemies, so to speak. Um, yeah, excellent. So much. I have like so much to say in response to that. I'm going to limit myself a little bit because I want to move us to the next set of questions. But just quickly, um, I, I absolutely agree that like the the uprising um, um, for, for for black lives in, in, in the U.S. has been just, you know, shattered so many uh, kind of you know, I think things that we had accepted about limitations on the on the possibility of popular protest and like showed that you can absolutely do popular protest um, in a moment of a pandemic and a lockdown. Not only that, but you can do it safely. Like there was no uh, there was no upsurge in, in the virus that happened. Everyone was masked. Uh, the, the protests I attended were relatively, you know, people stood far apart. You know, people were caring for one another, as happens all the time in protests. There's such an element of of collective care that pervades protests that I think people are very conscientious, right? So, so those protests didn't increase the 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 the, pan, the virus transmission, and they, you know, the the outcome is complicated. I don't want to say they succeed. You know, we've succeeded in all demands, but certainly there was a major impact on the political system, and in some contexts, there were certainly victories. So I think that should be inspiring to the climate movement. But I also think it should be inspiring in another way, which is not just like, oh, we can copy that kind of militant street protest on this separate issue. But rather, you know, I think it should be an invitation to the climate movement to think about like, you know, how is a, a movement for um, for racial justice against the carceral state, against the investment in militarism um, and prisons and policing that the U.S. you know government has done for many years? How is that like also a climate movement 
Or how can it also be connected to the climate movement? Or to put it in a totally different way, like how is the climate movement also a movement against the carceral state? I, I mean, to me, they, they are part of the same uh, uh, broadly understood movement for, for a society based on socio-natural flourishing and, and, and care um, and oriented away from, from profit and repression. You know, so, you know, I think it's an invitation both to think about what's possible tactically, but also more substantively, like the only way forward from my perspective for the climate movement is to make connections with other arenas of struggle um, and to be really concerted um, and intentional and good faith about those connections. Like we're not just trying to leverage someone else, someone else's movement for our movement, but understand them as having um, being organically connected in both their, their root causes in, in who is most harmed um, in how they re you know, address patterns of, of racialized um, class domination. Right. And so, you know, thinking broadly about that, I think would be good for the climate movement as a whole, but, but let me pivot us to war communism. Cause I don't want to, you know, we're, we're like more than halfway through the conversation. We haven't gotten to this other important part of your book. And, and in fact, where you just ended, you know, the, your prior sort of responses pivots us directly to war communism, which is like, capitalism is not going to do this itself. The state has a key role, but the state will only do so under militant pressure um, in a context of generalized crisis, right? I, I broadly agree with that. Let me just, since, since you didn't get to it in your initial intro, say a bit about what I take war communism to mean for you, which is, as you say in the book, it's not about like revolutionary cosplay. It's not like we're going to reenact like, you know, Bolsheviks and the Soviets. It's just about thinking about, you know, moments of, of crisis and the state forms that have come into being to respond to them. Um, war communism is, is a kind of state or maybe a sort of state society relation that's oriented towards catastrophe that, that takes seriously the sort of apocalyptic risks of our moment. Um, that, is ready to act quickly um, at scale and at speed to address the ecological root causes of the chronic emergency that is willing, um, very willing to use coercion and, and repress, repressive force to um, corral um, not just capitalists, but like the in, all productive forces in a particular direction and away from the direction that's causing the chronic emergency. That means, you know, nationalizing fossil fuels, keeping them in the ground, dismantling or repurposing fossil fuel infrastructure, repressing rapacious extraction, halting deforestation, reorienting production and supply chains, forcing a rapid transition to renewable energy, and actually limiting certain forms of consumption while encouraging others. Um, so my very first question might seem a little like out of left field in, in a way, um, but I wanna ask first and foremost, where is this state? Um, you know, the reason I ask it is um, we're both speaking from the global north. Um, a lot of my work and research and solidarity work is, is in Latin America. It's a place I often, you know, have in mind when I'm thinking about the climate crisis. And that sort of, and, I, and I'm thinking a lot just about the sort of like both international politics of, of the climate crisis, but also what internationalism might look like on the left with regards to the climate crisis. So those are the different, you know, uh, kind of reasons that I'm asking this question first, which is like, where in the world would this state emerge? Could the state emerge? And I mean that quite literally, like where in the world um, is could could all states be um, transformed under popular pressure into war communist kind of states? Um, is it something that you imagine primarily in the global north, but having salutary benefits everywhere because the global north is the worst 
you know, climate abuser on all fronts um, and environmental abuser. So if we can change the global north, that's good for elsewhere. Um, Is it, you know, instantiating these states in the global north? Would that result in a new politics of cooperation and solidarity with the global south? Or could any state, regardless of its position in um, in the world order, um, be refashioned into a war communist state? Um, it, it doesn't require any particular positionality in the world order in order to do so. And I'm sort of just curious about your thoughts on that. And then I'd like to get into some of the um, dilemmas that that you lay out that pervade the, the possibility of constructing a war communist state. Yeah, these are all very good points, and I, I don't, I'm not sure that I have any good good answer to them. Uh, I mean, where is the state? Well, the obvious question, the obvious answer is the, the state doesn't exist anywhere, and it's very hard to see it coming into existence tomorrow in any country anywhere on Earth. Uh, it's not like I have this scenario in the occasion that this is actually going uh, as soon as it should. Uh, uh, that said, uh, you're right that uh, ha- the, the way that I lay it out in, in the book, uh, 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 this argument is uh, pivoting towards the global north uh, because the the argument around deforestation in the book uh, uh, is that this process is nowadays uh, to a very large degree um, uh, propelled by consumption in the global north. So you have this enormous uh, uh, import of space from the tropics into something like the European Union. And if you're going to address this, uh, you um, will have to have states in the global north taking control over supply chains. But on the other hand, you can also you can also imagine, I mean, the the, the, the best case we might have of uh, a state actually putting the brakes on deforestation might be the the early Lula regime in, in Brazil, where you had a, a state in the global south uh, actually decelerating discontinuing deforestation uh, and, and going against the interests of global supply, supply chains and, and, and global capital. So uh, obviously that, that then qualifies a war communist state with a reform project, which was probably why it ended up uh, collapsing, because it made no break with, with, with the... Uh, with the with the ruling classes in Brazil and globally, no fundamental rupture. So the class interests came back with a vengeance and now are completely destroying the, the rainforest. Uh, but maybe, I mean, that, that experience, and uh, as you've pointed out in your work, the, the whole experience of, of, uh, of struggles around resource extraction in, in Latin America and the, the pink wave and all these things, I mean, these are uh, lessons that that uh, provide much more material to work with than anything that has happened in in Europe or in in, in North America in in recent years or decades. Because in Latin America, you've actually had social movements seizing state power and uh, 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 and facing that, the dilemma of how do we relate to global supply chains? What do we do with, with the resources that we have? Uh, do we do we let them be fully exploited, or do we try to end extraction? This is the the dilemma of, of your uh, your your book resource rattles that I've only read parts of, but that that seems amazing. 
Now, uh, so, uh, I mean, I, I, I guess one answer to the, to the question would be the larger the country, the easier it would be to institute uh, uh, something like a war communist state. I mean, the, the Brazilian state, the Chinese state, the, 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 US, the US state or, or EU, uh, the EU as a whole, I mean, would have the capacity to do this much more than a, a, a tiny little state like, I don't know, Burkina Faso or, or uh, Iceland or something like that. Uh, uh, yeah, but yeah, let's leave there. I'm, I'm not sure I, I have more insights to offer, but it's it's clearly a central question. Yes, and and I and I think those are all uh, uh, great points, and I absolutely agree. As you know, that there's a lot to learn from the 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 conflicts over extraction in Latin America, concomitant with having the left in power, and sort of what that what that looks like. And it's the only region of the world where we have those dynamics simultaneously to sort of draw on and understand for how to create left-wing projects like, you know, a radical Green New Deal, for example, in the U.S. Um, so I agree with you. And, and the other way to address my question, which I sort of alluded to in asking it, is that, um, you know, e e even if this is a book primarily targeted at sort of like what can be done in the bourgeois, you know, liberal democracy, capitalist, advanced capitalist states of the, of the global north, I, I don't think that's per se a, a weakness of the theory. And I think that we need to just increasingly think more about how some of the fundamental limitations on how much of a just ecological transition can happen in the global South without a major change like this in the global North are just increasingly apparent to me. Like the, some of the you know contradictions and dilemmas of the pink tide that I um, go over in my book and, and other work. I mean, a lot of it is, you know, a lot of it is internal to the political economy of, of those places and, and the class conflicts and all sorts of things. But, you know, a main, more and more clear to me limitation is just that, like, the global north keeps rapaciously wanting the stuff, right? And so, you know, I think that if states could change in the global north, I think we underestimate in some ways how that itself is an act of international solidarity, right? That opens up space for transitions in the global south. Um, then we could get into thornier discussions of transfer of resources between those states. And I'll leave that for another day. Let, let's go to, into the war communist state um, itself. Um, what I found, one of the discussions that I liked the most, perhaps because of the pink tide um, research I do and thinking a lot about the dilemmas that pervade left transformative projects that pass through these inevitably transitional moments, right? Very fraught transitional moments are like these kind of contradictions. So one that you lay out very, that I thought was very interesting is, is well, I'll, I'll do like three or four of them. One is, um, and you don't have to answer all, whichever like appeal. One is like the dilemma of having to use the state we have, which is the bourgeois state, right? So I'm curious, you know, we don't have time, you say, to like dual power our way into another state. We have to use the apparatus as it exists. And it was an apparatus designed intentionally or otherwise to support capital accumulation. And that itself is like a tension, right? So that's one thing, the, having to use the state that we have. The second is, um, aside from that, like this tension between emergency and democracy, which I think a lot of you know political theorists have written on. It comes up in Bonnie Honig's work. It comes up in Astra Taylor's work on democracy. There's a lot of you know interesting things to think about for how like emergency, um, urgent, um, uh, processes are in tension with democracy. It's something we explore on a planet to win. Like how can we have a quick transition to renewables without trampling over the desires of local communities in terms of how energy product projects are constructed and where they are and things like that. So the emergency democracy, um, um, and then there's a sort of sub point of that, which is like 
the need for centralized decision making and, and you emphasize planning a lot and I'm and it, it, it's compelling to me, but one also needs agility and flexibility because we live in a it's uncertain the climate chaos is uncertain and just like the new world we want to build is uncertain so that tension between like centralization of planning and um and the agility and flexibility of the process um and then I'll I'll just say um I'll throw two more at you again just any of these that that you don't have to respond to all of them I think they're all interesting kind of equally the 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 second to last one is like this this um capitalist monopoly on knowledge and expertise kind of comes up a few times. Like how can we redeploy the, what capitalists have built against them, but like while kind of recruiting them into the process, you kind of say like, maybe we'll poach some of these capitalists from the Silicon Valley startups into like our socialist planned, you know, uh, green technology, you know, uh, supply chains. But like, you know, it, it raises this question, which is very pervasive in the global South, but it's actually pervasive everywhere, which is that like capitalists, like own technologies, they own expertise, they own data, they own all these things that we actually need from them. And in order to get it from them, we can't always just in a crude and brute way expropriate it. Like we sometimes need their participation in order to like operate those systems. Right. And so I'm curious about that. And the very last thing, which might be the hardest, so you can take it or leave it, which is like war communism in one state. So I said earlier, like, where in the world are we? But regardless of where in the world we are, can we have war communism in one state alone? This is a classic question of socialism, but I mean it in a particular sense here, which is the fact that the supply chains that you talk about um, uh, rerouting and reorienting and planning in a different way are globally dispersed. And I don't see any time frame in the near future in which that's gonna dramatically change. Um, even if we have some movements towards regionalization and reshoring, it doesn't matter. They're just really everywhere. And how do we actually get a democratic hold on supply chains that are in no way delineated by the boundaries of the war communist state? So those are like five dilemmas. You can choose whichever you want. And, um, <laughs> and I'm curious what you say. <laughs> Yeah, we, I mean, we we uh, we would, uh, I mean, we could discuss these things for hours, day, and probably years. Uh, even though we don't have the time for, for many reasons, but let me let me just make a few points. So I I yes, I admit that this particular book is very state centered or even state centric, and that's probably one of the major flaws of of this book. Uh, but uh, in conjunction with that flaw is probably the lack of an in-depth discussion about precisely this dilemma. How do how do we use, how do we instrumentalize existing states? Or is that what we want to do? Do we want to use the existing states to, to do what seems impossible for them to do? Or should we actually aim for replacing existing states with some other kind of institutions? I mean, I, I just touch upon this dilemma very superficially and briefly and don't really discuss it in depth. Uh, and that's probably the key weakness in terms of strategic thinking uh, in this book. Uh, let me just say that that this this other book that has been mentioned, How to Blow Up Pipeline, is uh, uh, completely opposite. It's entirely movement centered and and uh, com uh, totally focused on the question of what tactics should 
the climate movement uh, deploy. Uh, so I, I hope that they in, in some way complement each other, but I'm not sure that they overlap in a congruous fashion, that, that they make a coherent totality. <clears throat> um, not, not at all. Uh, because the, 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 I mean, what it all boils down to is the dilemma that that left movements keep uh, facing in our time, and that is how do we how do we take power? Who is the subject? The subject? What is what is the what is the class force? Uh, how can it be constituted? How can it be recomposed? And how can it um, how can it avail itself of of the state power that it needs to uh, achieve various goals? Uh, and uh, I, I mean, I, as everyone else, I left struggle with this. What, what, uh, what can we? I mean, what, what are the paths forward? What are the viable strategies? I mean, there, there were moments when I'm, I'm sure you were hopeful about Bernie Sanders. At least I was from from my position in Sweden. There were moments when we were now today he's being kicked out of the Labour Party. He had his membership suspended today. So it's not like these strategies have proved themselves extremely successful, even though they they have inspired hope in us. And that goes for for everything that we've tried in in recent years. Uh, so we don't have a template to work with, but we're in an emergency. We really, and that, that's that's uh, that's the, that's the problem. We're in a situation where we really need to make things happen extremely fast without having anything like a blueprint, anything like a clear model or vision for how we accomplish uh, transformational change. And uh, emergency generally is probably not a situation that is conducive to. Democracy and democratic initiative. And uh, although I mean, some some comrades point out rightly that in in situations of collapse and and crisis, you have grassroots initiatives. You can have everything from mutual aid neighborhood committees popping up to I don't know Occupy Sandy type initiatives to you know anti-fascist committees towards the end of the Second World War that that uh, rose from the ashes and started taking things into their own hand and uh, and uh, provisioning people satisfying their basic needs so that there can be in in a situation of emergency and there can be seeds sprouting in the direction of of popular power and things like that <clears throat> so one shouldn't discount that possibility but generally my 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 understanding is that emergency is not the best situation to build a, a democratic power from from below the problem the problem here is that if you want to deal with this emergency it's not going to happen without without democratic popular initiative from below uh, because states states as uh, this is my whole argument in the books the state that we have nothing suggests that they on their own of their own accord of their own volition will will uh, will uh, uh, take the necessary steps and i think that if a trans if we if we talk about the transition away from fossil fuels it will only come about if there is sufficient mass force mass pressure on states and uh, if you envision such a scenario let's imagine that you have a climate movement uh, that are stronger than in 2019 by several orders of magnitude in combination with um uh, strikes that you, that you that you briefly touched upon i mean uh, very you, you can imagine various types of of, of classical workers strikes that uh, uh, that that try to push a, a transitional agenda if if that scenario were to be realized i mean it's a, in, a, in a way it's a best case you would, you would potentially be 
force the state to do what needs to be done. And impose this kind of, let's call it war communism, or emergency measures against fossil capital and other things like that. But that would also build in a tension between the the popular prime mover, if you like, of the transition and the state that is, that's supposed to execute the transition. And it's in if if such a scenario were to play out, there would I mean there there would be all sorts of risks with the state trying to. Uh, uh, to 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 quash popular movements, to uh, to uh, 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 monopolize initiatives, to yeah, I mean, all sorts of authoritarian degeneration is conceivable in such a scenario. This is com- completely in the realm of speculation. Obviously, it's it's all completely hypothetical. But but we know that in in emergency situ- situations, states uh, are quite prone to go down that route. Where that's happening right now in in. Uh, in France, again, where, where, where you have this kind of crisis and the state takes all these authoritarian uh, measures. Uh, uh, the, the, uh, the only safeguard against authoritarian degeneration in such a scenario would be continued vigilance and continued pressure from precisely this popular prime mover, if you like. Uh, yes. Um, uh, I mean, time is, time is about to run out, so maybe... Maybe we'll we'll save the questions of how do we appropriate the skills from capital for later, uh, and this, some of the the issues around around war communism. And, and is it time to to yeah, give the audience opportunity to? Ask. Yeah, I'll take us to some audience questions. I just want to say really briefly in response to something you said. I think it's you know absolutely true that we haven't ever witnessed, um, uh, because we're in a completely unique historical conjuncture, the type of rapid transition um, uh, that, that, that needs to happen and the type of state form that could usher it in. And therefore, we don't know exactly what the sort of state society dynamics might be. We don't know you know, how much such a state would tend towards repression, centralization, um, coercion, um, and how much it could be kept accountable and and, and, and honest by by movements, you know, the, the, that, that sort of, as you say, speculative, but I don't think it's entirely speculative. And again, I'll just circle us back to Latin America, though there are other moments, I think, in, in a whole history of anti-colonial uprisings that became states. I mean, there, there, there are longer histories to also draw on here, but, you know, in, in, in the Pink Tide moments, Certainly, one of the one of the many contradictions um, that that led to sort of undermining of those governments politically was the ossification of um, of bureaucracies and of a political leadership class unmoored from its popular bases, right? And even though it wasn't an emergency moment, it was a moment of rapid change, rapid political and economic transformation, a commodity boom that was being taken advantage of in order to like invest in, in infrastructure and social needs and also a repressive um, or I shouldn't say repressive, but a but a confrontational attitude by the state towards um, the the dominant classes of those societies, and so there are some similarities, and I think you do get these tensions between centralization and democracy, or between uh, a coercive state which needs to be coercive to do what it sets out to do, and po- there's popular support for that, but obviously that coercive apparatus can also be trained on the population, which is not what movements are asking for, right? So I think I think we have historical precedent for those dilemmas, but not for the heightened and accelerated emergency moment in which they might unfold. Okay, that's just my response. I I just wanted to get that in. But let me me pivot to audience questions. I want to ask one that 
that you get at briefly in the book, but we have not actually really talked about very much in this conversation that I think is an excellent one. So it's from Anya Verkamp. And um, uh, I'll pose her question and just add a line of my own to it. So her question is, do you think that this time of economic crisis might be an opportunity for new policies and that carbon emissions will slow down for the moment and growth will become more and more difficult? And and so she's asking, you know, we're in this moment of economic crisis, of low growth, of also low, lower emissions. Um, uh, is this a, a more auspicious moment for the kind of changes that we want to bring about? And I'll just add, because you address it in the book, that, you know, I, I often try to think about, and I don't have a conclusive answer, like what this lower growth sort of period of, of like secular stagnation means for a climate movement that's actually trying to transition us to a lower growth, if not a degrowth kind of scenario. I mean, it's like capitalism is running into what you call the sort of first contradiction, which is like this overproduction, overcapacity, not enough of a market. And it's it's entering in for many decades now into this lower growth phase with a an ex- very important exception of China. I'm going to put that aside for now. There's another question about China if we have time for it, um, but just generally, um, um, and or maybe just especially in the sort of advanced capitalist sort of Anglo-European countries. Um, and does that like make a transition to a sort of you know, lower degrowth, more ecological uh, economy, easier uh, or harder or what? Um, and and how does economic crisis that we're all experiencing right now sort of play into that? So that that seems to be the um, question from the audience. Yeah. So again, I think the situation here is very contradictory. Uh, obviously, CO2 emissions have plunged this year in a way that, that they've never done before. The last projection that I read from a paper in Nature Climate Change said that emissions will probably go down 17% this year, global annual CO2 emissions. That's, that is a, a big fall. But what it means, given growth in recent years, is that the amount of emissions this year will be the same as in 2000. And, and you know, in 2006, we in the climate movement were were <laughs> were demanding that we have to 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 take emissions down from this horribly high level so it, 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 we might be we, we might be back to 2006 this year now what what will happen next year is anybody's guess will these lockdowns continue to put a lid on on uh, on growth or will growth rebound if it rebounds will it will it uh, uh, fully uh, restart business as usual, or will there be some sort of shifts happening <clears throat> uh, towards more renewable energy or something like that? I mean, it's 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 extremely hard to say because this is ultimately a, a question of balance of forces. Uh, unfortunately, stagnation is also. Uh, having an impact on, for instance, the renewable energy sector, where where the economic crisis uh, is also uh, hitting hard. So uh, you have a, a certain uh, um, sectors of renewable energy that uh, have also put their expansion on hold. Uh, and this, uh, I, I don't think that we in the climate movement should just welcome this stagnation as in finally we're getting less growth or even degrowth. Because uh, this is where I would part with with the degrowth agenda and, and, and lean more towards the Green New Deal agenda. Some things need to grow while other things are uh, completely taken offline. So uh, we, we can't just sit back and, and say, well, finally, things in general are, 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 are stopping, you know, are not growing anymore. Uh, that's not how we're going 
getting out of this? Um, yeah, it'll be my brief response. Yeah, no, I, I think that that's right. And I think where you were going at the end there just, again, points to the need for the state. I mean, in the sense that renewable energy, even if it's cheaper and more profitable now for capitalists right. to invest in renewable energy, um, like everything, it's taken an economic hit. And even, you know, even if we weren't in this particular crisis, we would still need the hand of the state to push forward a transition because energy systems, you know, again, as you're own work shows, like they tend to sort of have these built-in dynamics of self-reproduction unless either the accumulation uh, uh, drive or like the, the state and, and popular power is going to push them to do something different. So I think that that's absolutely um, correct. Yeah. Let me just add that what we have uh, in Europe and it goes to other places as well across in the world is a situation where you have expansion of renewable energy capacity, but you also have expansion of uh, fossil infrastructure. So you have, I mean, just look at the country. I mean, right now, Germany. Germany is on Sunday. Berlin is uh, opening up airports. Germany uh, inaugurated a new coal fired power plant, and those coal fired power plants have an extended life of 40 years. And there is a struggle going on in, in, in the west of the country around a, a section of the autobahn that is going to be expanded. So they want to cut down a, a, an old growth forest to expand this, this uh, uh, yeah, the most infamous, monstrous highway on earth, probably. And, and this is happening in 2020. Uh, and uh, and and the European Union is in a uh, in a period of expanding uh, the fossil gas infrastructure very dramatically at the same time as you have renewable energy expansion. But it doesn't matter if you have renewable energy uh, expansion if you also have fossil fuel expansion or even a continuation of fossil. You have to shut the fossil fuels down to get the impact that you want on the climate system, and it's nowhere near happening. Right. Um, well, let's go to a part of the world where that dual dynamic is perhaps um, uh, even more uh, heightened, um, which is China. Um, uh, so, so there's a question from Aaron um, in the audience. Where does China fit into this north-south paradigm, roughly the sort of paradigm we've been using to structure this conversation? Um, what do you think about their recent commitments to become carbon neutral by 2060? And I'll just add my own point just to reiterate like what you were just saying, which is that China is, you know, on the vanguard of investments in renewable energy and the electrification of transit in advances in green technology at the same time that, of course, their Belt and Road Initiative um, has involved new coal plants, um, new um, coal mining and coal fired power plants um, as part of a sort of geopolitical strategy of accumulation. Right. So I'm, I'm curious, you know, China, perhaps like no other place on Earth, exemplifies these sort of dual tendencies of, of the energetics of, of yeah. capitalism, which is towards both renewables and more fo fossil fuels at the same time. So I guess the question is, how do we analyze China? Yeah, yeah. I, you know much more about China than I do. I, I haven't read, uh, studied uh, Chinese uh, material in a long time. So I, I'm not sure I have much to add to this, uh, to be honest. Uh, you go on if you have more insights to share. I don't, I don't have much, I'm afraid. 
Yeah, I think that um, maybe I said already what I think and sort of posing the question in a very in a very leading um, way. I mean, I think that that for a variety of historical reasons, which we won't get into right now, China has a unique level of both industrial capacity and what we might call like political will to really deeply invest in the sectors that are at the vanguard of, of capitalist production, which are these green technologies and, and you know, electric vehicles and renewable energy. At the same time that, you know, the the drive for for growth and for increased industrial production and for that to, um, you know, spread over more territory and markets within their sort of ambit is also sort of uh, redounding to the the the. Um, the increase in fossil fuel production at the same time. So, but I, I do think that just to answer the, the the viewer's question, I do think that it is very significant that China has taken, uh, you know, ambitious, perhaps not ambitious enough, but anyway, like a firm line on when they're going to be carbon neutral. I think it makes like the U.S. look like a total laggard. I mean, we already are such a laggard, but it, it, it just calls into question the idea that the U.S. is in any way a global leader, right? I'll, I'll just, I'll leave it there. I think it's, I think it is interesting development that there's more conversation. Sure. I make, make two points here on China. First, um, related to the question of where will the, this, these things kick off? Where will the war communist state be and things like that? Uh, there is, of course, the important book Climate Leviathan by uh, Joel Wainwright and Jeff Mann that uh, has a scenario slightly similar to my, to my war communism scenario, which is what they call Climate Mao. And there they have the argument that China is uh, a, a society and a state where uh, a, a centralized state-led transition from use uh, could be uh, for a variety of reasons uh, uh, easier than in many other places. We already have such a very strong state uh, that that could, if if it wanted to, use its powers to to. Uh, but and just as you lay out, it's it, this isn't something that the Chinese state appears uh, willing to do. Of uh, of its own right now, or at least there there, there are very few signs of it. Uh, and again, I think it points to uh, this, the, the the dilemma that to get this kind of transition going, to to get the state to flex its muscles, there has to be a prime mover coming from below to to force the state to do so. And I'm not sure that uh, that you have a situation in China where you have a social mobilization around climate energy that can. Uh, uh, at least in the short ter term, attain that. Uh, I don't. I don't know the social movement scene in China, so I can't say. Let me just. The second point I want to make: the idea, the, the term "carbon neutral" or "climate neutral" really <laughs> makes me want to reach for my uh, guns, very metaphorically, because what it almost always implies is that we're going. We're not going to stop using fossil fuels. We're just going to develop some kind of system to offset their impact, be it by afforestation or by uh, by you know clean development mechanisms again, flexible mechanisms in the global south that are, as we know, uh, completely useless, or by some kind of of new negative emissions technologies, uh, bioenergy, carbon capture and storage, direct air capture, or whatever it is. I don't know the, this Chinese plan, but when you have, for instance, B. BP saying that we're going to be uh, uh, carbon neutral in uh, in a couple of decades. They don't mean by that that they will stop uh, taking up oil and gas. They mean completely different things by that. 
And we, we can't have everyone continuing taking out fossil fuels and at the same time achieve some kind of a, a, a carbon or climate neutrality. It, it's an impossible arithmetic. And you can't have BP uh, continuing to plan for an increase in its oil and gas production by around 20% in the next decade and moving towards, uh, towards zero impact. Yeah, so I'm 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 fine with any kind of, of question here or whatever. Yeah. Sure, that that's great. Um, and um, um, and I think that you know to speak to the environmental activism in China, I think it's precisely because of localized um, uh, uh, movements against pollution and against coal plants have been one of the reason that China is moving coal mining and coal plants, you know, elsewhere in its sort of belt and road kind of, you know, territorial uh, ambit. Um, so there have been effects, but it's it's resulted in, in sort of the displacement rather than the elimination of fossil fuels. Um, but okay, let, let me go to another question from the audience, um, which gets to something we have not at all really directly addressed yet, which is your critique of, of social democracy as an inadequate political form to address the crisis and your preference for what you call climate Leninism. It's, it's interesting to, um, or ecological Leninism, or I forget which it is now. Um, and it's interesting that you mentioned, you know, Climate Leviathan, the book where they lay out various configurations of sort of climate and sovereignty and thinking through, you know, which of them is most adequate to the crisis. And you land on one that isn't directly addressed in that book, which is your own, which is climate or ecological Leninism. So the, the question is like, why not social democracy? And I think that the viewer just wants to understand the contrast between uh, those two better and, and, and why, why a Leninist approach is, is more apt for our moment. Yeah, so uh, I'm, this choice here of uh, social democracy or Leninism, uh, for me, is just, it goes back to the historical moment of the outbreak of the first, which was like the catastrophe that that uh, that in motion the 20th century, basically. And uh, when you when you try to think around uh, catastrophe uh, and use Marxist tools, it, it comes back to the war because that's that was the catastrophe that really caused the bifurcation the labor movement between uh, the, the communists branch and the social democratic branch. So if you want to discuss social, democrat social democracy versus something else in relation to catastrophe, that is the natural uh, historical reference point, if you see what I mean. And uh, when the First World War was about to start and when it actually started, what happened, as you know, was that the Social Democrats just went along with it and um, uh, completely uh, forgot about their promises to stop the war and vote for the war credits in, in Germany and in every other country and then teamed up with their bourgeoisies in every state to, to, to fight the war uh, to the end. Uh, the 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 people who acted differently were Rosa Luxemburg and Lenin, and their initially extremely small group of revolutionary Marxists for a long time, particularly Luxembourg, that development will usher in catastrophe unless we break with it. I mean that that's been Rosa Luxemburg's 
argument in the in the in, in her fight against the revisionists against Edward Bernstein, who 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 became a sort of de facto founder of social democracy as a reformist project based on the idea that we can gradually improve society and lift the working class out of the mire and uh, incrementally. Uh, move towards a better world. Based on the on the on, on his projection that capitalism won't produce catastrophes, but Rosa Luxemburg argued, well, they, it will, and it did. And what she and Lenin said it, it was, th- this was already in the in the famous uh, declaration taken by the Second International at the conference in in 1912, but that that was then completely forgotten by the social democratic leaders. Is that if the war starts? We have turned that catastrophe into a revolutionary crisis and end the power of the capitalist class that has brought this catastrophe upon us. And that speaks to the present moment in the way that social democracy does not. Because if there's one thing we don't have at this moment, it's time. And social democracy as a reformist project is based on having a lot of time. That's what the social democrats in Sweden, which is uh, often, you know, promoted as the best uh, example of, of a social democratic project. That's precisely what the social democrats thought that they had, and indeed to some extent did have in this and, and uh, to some extent the They had time. We don't have time now. What we do have is a situation analogous, formally, to the one faced by Rosa Luxemburg and Lenin, where we have a catastrophe upon us. And the only way to get out of that catastrophe is to take power from at least the fractions of the capitalist class that drive deeper and deeper and deeper into the catastrophe. So the, the I mean the the core the core idea of 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 what I in the book uh, provisionally call ecological Leninism is uh, this orientation. Uh, and this goes back to to my initial comments. I think that uh, we need to find a way to transform those crises into crises for the drivers, uh, you know, vaguely in parallel with the First World War into a revolutionary crisis where you depose the, uh, the classes that, uh, that insist on continuing slaughtering people for no good reason, which is actually exactly what the Bolsheviks did. You can you can have many things against them, but the one thing they did was that they did end the First World War from their side by deposing the provisional government, and that was, I mean, that, paradoxically, all of the the war communism that came later and all these things uh, uh, um, emerged out of the situation where um, the Bolshevik Revolution ended the catastrophe of the First World War, but were punished for that. By having a new war thrown uh, at them, and therefore the emergency became chronic. Uh, yeah, there is much, much more to say on this ecological Leninism, war communism, all these things. But yeah, I'll stop there. Um, I think that uh, that is a uh, quite an understatement. There is much, 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 much more to be said, and I hope to continue this conversation, you know, with you, with you know, among our various comrades um, in in future contexts. Um, I yeah. think that's an excellent place to end, um, a sort of riveting call to action for why we need a militant orientation in this moment. And I just really thank you for this conversation and suggest thank you. Yeah, thank take a look thank at this, you. which is a 
um, in a, a riveting read, uh, really. Um, uh, I, I was engrossed by it, and, and I suggest others pick it up, and your um, other book as well about blowing up a pipeline I look forward to. Um, so I think with that, I'd like to thank Haymarket, Verso, and DSA Eco-Socialists for co-sponsoring this, and Andreas um, for participating. Thank you so much. Thanks to everyone you mentioned and uh, all the comrades uh, uh, in front of their screens, wherever they are in the world. Thank you. Let's keep the conversation going. Yes. Yeah. Thanks for listening. If you liked this episode, subscribe to our podcast and to the Haymarket Books YouTube channel, where events like this one are hosted live. And don't forget to check out haymarketbooks.org. <laughs>